Well, I sent out an email this week, and I have had a, a deep burden all week long, um, especially in light of last week's message, where we talked about the reality of hell. And we looked at these words by Jesus. He, sp- he speaks of hell, and then he describes it as a place where their worm does not die. And the idea there is when a body is decaying, the larva that eats the body, they will never die. Um, and then the fire is not quenched. It goes on forever and ever and ever. And it is a picture of a horrible state. Elsewhere, it is described as the outer darkness. It's a place where the wrath of God is unrelenting. Now, if that's not terrifying enough, Jesus says this, and we've seen this verse maybe once or twice before, where he says, on that day, and here's the scary word, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. They will call him Lord. And then they'll, they'll present all their works. Didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And what's his verdict? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They will be sent away. But the picture here is that many who think they're saved are deceived about their salvation. So I have been burdened and praying all week long that if that describes any of us, God would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and face the truth and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now, this is in the flow of our study of Colossians. We are in chapter 1. By the way, I went back and I counted for six weeks. We've looked at that hymn uh, in in chapter 1 where Paul is exalting Christ as the creator, the king of kings, and he's above all things created in heaven and on earth. He is before all things. All things were made by him and for him. And last week we talked about the idea that he's going to reconcile all things, and we kind of wrestled with that. So now, in these next two verses, it's as if Paul, he's looking to Jesus and praising Jesus, and now he looks horizontally at the Colossians, and he talks to them. And here's the outline, before and after. Here was you before... And now here's you after. So, before, and you who once were, and he describes the the soul of the unbeliever with three terms. You once were alienated, there's one, and hostile in mind, there's two, doing evil deeds, there's three. There's a little outline this morning that we're going to follow. But then they came to Christ and You now, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
So here's what I would encourage us to do. As we look, um, as we spend most of our time in verse 21, I would use this as an x-ray or picture yourself on, on an MRI and we're examining our hearts to see where we're at spiritually. Because there is nothing worse than waking up in eternity under the wrath of God. Right? So let's take a look at these three terms and use them as a, a test. Right? First of all, he describes the unbeliever as alienated. Now, you would think that those who are alienated from God would all be found outside of the church. But remember the parable of the prodigal sons? Not just the prodigal son, but the prodigal sons. One of them, due to his own choice, was alienated outside the family. He left the farm. Right? But the other, due to his own choice, was alienated in the family, still on the farm. So there are those in every church who are in the farm, but they're just as alienated from God as the prodigal outside the church. Right? Now, um, when I say alienated, I mean not in a relationship with God. They are alienated relationally from God. God. Now, what is the sure sign that you're alienated from God? And I would say a lack of passion for his word. A lack of passion for his word. Let me show you this verse. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. So picture a multitude of sheep. A bunch of shepherds bring their sheep together. And um, it's time for one shepherd to take his sheep. And he has a sheep call. And he says, come on, sheep. And his sheep hear his voice. And they leave the others, and they follow him. Those who are being saved and those who are saved love the voice of the shepherd. They love Jesus' voice. Now, where do you hear Christ's voice today? In his word. God has chosen to communicate to his sheep through his word. And more specifically, here's the dynamics of how it works. He communicates through a mind obsessed and saturated with his word. Right? That's how he communicates to his sheep. In fact, let me show you a couple of verses in Psalm 1, it speaks of the blessed man. Blessed is the man who walks 
not in the counsel of the wicked. His, he doesn't like to hang around the foul-mouthed wicked people, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Okay? That's not his company. Well, what describes the essence of the blessed man? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Why? Because God has placed in his heart a desire to know God more, and he just has this inner knowledge that the way you know God more is through his revealed word, and he quests after it, and he studies it, and he here's the big thing, he thinks about it all the time. I'm told that that word uh, for meditate is somehow it finds its way uh, through a series of languages, uh, but, but I think it's in French. The same word is used for a cow chewing the cud. You think about that cow, and then they regurgitate it and do it again. And like, How many stomachs do they have? Like 29 stomachs? They just keep doing that. So there you go. There's your picture. Is that you? Obsessed with the Word of God. You want more. You want to read it. You want to hear it preached. You want to hear it taught. And, And most importantly, you're thinking about it all the time. Here in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. And notice the emotional words here. There's delight in the law. There's love for the law. And there's meditation on the law. So, a saved person with the Holy Spirit living inside of them loves God's Word. He's obsessed with God's Word. He mulls over God's Word. He thinks about God's Word. He reads God's Word. He studies God's Word. He longs for teaching from God's Word because a mind saturated with the Word is the way his sheep knows him more. The unsaved person may be in a church where the Word is taught, but he doesn't love the Word and read the Word and study the Word. Frankly, he's disengaged and bored with the Word. There's a way to tell whether that Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you. You know, Jesus actually used this obsession-boredom paradigm in his teaching. You know, in, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus uses parables all the time. And um, in one time, after he, he teaches the, uh, the four soils, his disciples say, why do you teach in parables? Now, that's an interesting question. In fact, I am preparing to teach a class on teaching the Scripture, and I'm reading some stuff. And a lot of times people will say, well, Jesus used parables because he was a master teacher. And master teachers know that uh, stories captivate people and they hold people's attention and that's why Jesus used parables. That's not why Jesus said he taught in parables. 
Why did Jesus, what what was his answer to the question, why do you teach in parables? He said to them, to you, sheep, believers, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that, purpose statement, so that, purpose statement, right? they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. You get that? Why does Jesus teach in parables? Two reasons. One, so those who are his sheep will hear and understand because they want to know him. They will think about them and mull them over and get to the true meaning. But another purpose of Jesus' teaching in parables was to further harden the hearts of the alienated, disinterested person. Now, I know that goes against everything some of you have ever perceived about teaching and preaching. But Jesus says, this is the reason I teach in parables to draw the elect, and to harden the others. So here's our first evaluation question to see if you may be deceived about your salvation. Do I have a passion to read, study, and meditate on the Word of God to know Him more? Or am I frankly bored with it? Where are you at? If that passion is not there, I don't think you're saved. And it's your fault. It's your fault that you're not fascinated with the person of Christ and the Word of God. You could be the prodigal who's left the farm or the prodigal on the farm. But a lack of passion for His Word is a sign that that Holy Spirit's not living inside of you. Right? And I say this to have us realize that if we're not saved, we need to wake up to that. What could be worse than eternal damnation under the wrath of God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Right? So that's the first question. Do you have a passion for God's Word? Right? Paul goes on and he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. There's a hostility in the heart and the mind of the unbeliever toward God. Now, you say, well, I know a lot of unbelievers, but I wouldn't say they're hostile toward God. In fact, many of them talk about God. He's the man upstairs. Right? They pray sometimes. They're all for God. So this doesn't seem to square with the reality of all the unbelievers I know. Well, here's a question. Is the God that they're not hostile toward the true God or simply a God of their imagination? In other words, an idol. 
you know, a lot of people say, of course I love God. But then when you actually teach them about who God is, they don't like it. So they'll say things like, well, you're talking about hell and eternity. I love God, but my God would never send anybody to hell for eternity. That's not my view of God. Then your view of God is not the true God. Which is why I thought it was so scary when so many people bought into the Rob Bell book, Love Wins. That's our God. Wow. Well, I love God, but my God is not a God who predestines reality. Really? Ephesians 1.11? All of... <laughs> All of Scripture that talks about God being in control and sovereign over everything, that's not your God? Well, no wonder you love your God. Well, I, I love Jesus. Now, I'm not a, you know, one of those fundamentalists who believes he's the only way to be saved. Really? So, you, so your Jesus is a way to be saved, but not the way, the, tr- the way, the truth, and the life. So they're fine with God as they define him. They're fine with a safe God, but not the true God, whom they don't know because they're not obsessed with the word of God. Right? Now, um, after somebody, let's say they come into a church where the, the word of God is taught, they inevitably will become hostile. But since they can't do anything about their hostility to God, who do they take their hostility out on? His followers. Right? Think of Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul the Apostle. He hated Christ. So who did he take it out on? Believers. Why? Because their righteous lives were a threat to his proud, unrighteous heart. So believers became the target of his hostility. Right? Think about the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus. His righteous life and his righteous teaching exposed and threatened their dark hearts. So to justify themselves, to feel good about themselves, they needed to discredit this guy. And how'd they do it? Petty criticisms. One of their favorite things to discredit him with is the fact that he did a lot of healing on the Sabbath. In fact, in John 9, there's a man who was born blind. All he'd ever seen his entire life, blackness. And Jesus opens his eyes. And he can see now. And he's jumping around. And they go, hey, hey. Who healed you? Jesus. Oh, that Jesus guy. When did he do it? On the Sabbath. Proves it. He's not of God. In their mind, they had the rules figured out, 
And he didn't fit into their paradigm. Didn't do it their way. He's discredited. Matthew 15, he and his disciples are walking through a field. And uh, the Mosaic Law said you could glean, you could take grain off of the wheat and eat it. And they were doing that. And the Pharisees, who hated Jesus, said, Aha! You didn't wash your hands the right way. According to the tradition of the elders, you are discredited. Obviously, you are not a holy person. Now, any objective person would look at them and go, that's your criteria for criticizing? That is so petty. But in their mind, they need ammunition to discredit believers because of their hostility toward God. So here's, a, here's another question. Do I love and support other believers or do I have a critical spirit toward them? Now, usually critical people are cowards who need to find other critical people to get on their bandwagon. So what they do... They, have, uh, they, they toss out little crumbs of criticism. And some people ignore the crumbs and they go, well, they're, they're not going to bite. But other people bite. And then they find somebody to confide their criticisms in. And then they can say, well, it's not just me. I have a whole bunch of people who... Uh, agree with me. Wolves who divide churches are masters at gathering co-critical people. And I'd be terrified because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, anyone who destroys God's temple, the people of, of God, I will destroy him. Gossip and criticism to hide your hostility against God is not a small thing. Be careful. By the way, if you know somebody like that, the godly thing to do is to call them on it. Call them to repent, especially if you have a spouse like that. Otherwise, you're just aiding and abetting their eternal damnation. So, question number two. You hostile in mind? How do you know? You take it out on godly people. Number three. Doing evil deeds. Let me ask you a question. Ultimately, why are unbelievers unbelievers? Now, if you ask them, they'll give you a whole list. The apologetic arguments are not convincing. Uh, the church is not up to my standard. This person hurt my feelings. Blah, 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 blah. They give you all the... And by the way, if you don't have any excuses or if you don't have any uh, criticisms of, say, this church, I can give you a whole list of them. 
you're looking for some, I've got, I, I'm well aware that, that we are far from the perfect church in the world. Okay, Perfect church, no. But ultimately, why is an unbeliever an unbeliever? Because he loves his sin more than God. No, he says or she says they really struggle with evolution versus creation. Or they really struggle with the way the church does this or does that. Or so-and-so hurt them. In the... No, the ultimate reason why an unbeliever is an unbeliever is because they love their sin more than Christ. And they have a whole list of excuses to blame it on others. See, pride is the big thing. They're never going to admit that they're wrong, so it's everybody else's fault. Jesus says this, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Their sin has to be protected. And the more they truly come close to the light, it'll be exposed, and they don't want that. So let's hide from the light. Let's dim the light. Let's criticize the light. Let's come up with excuses so I don't have to be in the light. Now, you say, well, Pastor, haven't you taught that the unbeliever can't come to Christ? Yes. In fact, Jesus says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There is an absolute inability of the unbeliever to come to Christ. Okay, But, unbeliever, don't you dare use that as an excuse to get yourself off the hook. Why? Because the source of that inability is you. Right? This is the inability of the man or the woman who doesn't want to come into the light. This is not the inability of a man who says, oh, I want to be saved, I want to come into the light, but God won't let me. No, 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 no. It's the willing inability of the sinful heart that loves darkness more than light. You know, over the years, I've, uh, I've dealt with some men who have fallen into adulterous affairs. And um, think of one, one particular guy who was a leader, teaching a youth group and so forth, and um, fell into an affair. And you sit down with him, and you say, what's going on? 
And, and a person in that condition is, especially if they've been exposed to the truth, they're like, they're schizophrenic. I, I, I want to, to quit the affair, but I don't want to. I, and at one point, this person said, I just can't quit. Well, what do you mean you can't quit? You can't pick up the phone, say, never talk to me again, it's over? You don't have the physical ability to do that? Well, they have the physical ability to do it. They have no desire to do it. They love their sin more than they love God. Right? Um, this week at Moody, there's a, a group of young marrieds, and we're going to go talk to them. They ask professors to come in and talk. And um, we did this a while back. And they thought, hey, it would be great to have uh, the sex talk. So they brought Elizabeth and I in, and they put the boys in one room and the girls in another room. It was like junior high, right? And so I talked about battling lust and pornography. And one guy came up to me afterwards, and he said, let me tell you my story. He says when he was first married, um, he was very deeply into pornography. His wife caught him. And she said, it's either her or pornography. And he said, I weighed my options and I was going to choose pornography. He wanted pornography over her. He was that blinded, that enslaved, that he would have chosen pornography over his marriage. But God did a work in his heart, and he was able to repent and and rid himself of that. This is the kind of inability that the sinner is blinded by, enslaved to, He can't come to Christ because he doesn't want to come to Christ. He has chosen, remember the C.S. Lewis illustration, mud pies over a holiday at the sea. Now, um, I talked about affairs and pornography. Does this mean that every unbeliever has some gross sin like that in mind? Yes and no. No, if you define gross sin as an affair or bank robbery or murder, no, not not every unbeliever is involved in that kind of gross sin. Yes, though, if you define gross sin, gross evil, as refusing to submit to your creator. That's the grossest sin of all. Bottom line, the unbeliever is a control freak. Now, control freaks can look very together. They can be high achievers. They can be highly disciplined. Their families can look really squeaky clean. They're usually very concerned about what people think of them. But they're not 
willing to do the one thing that is required for salvation. Surrender control to their creator. I remember, um, I'm going to tell a tale on Caleb. He doesn't know about this. When Caleb was a little guy, we would have um, Bible time at night. We'd read the little children's Bible. And, um, you know, I figured it was about time this kid gets saved. So he was maybe four or five. And I figured I'd explain the gospel and we'd pray and get that little task taken care of. So um, I explained the gospel and Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. And do you want to pray to receive Jesus? Well, what does that mean? And I explained, well, um, you can't save yourself, so you're trusting in him because he died on the cross. And you're, you're basically saying, Jesus, be my Savior and be my Lord. Well, what, what does Lord mean? Well, he's your boss. You're saying you can be my boss. Ready to pray? He goes, no. Because I need to think about this. I'm not so sure I want a boss. That's the heart of the unbeliever. I'm not so sure I want a boss. So, here's the third diagnostic question. Am I willing to surrender my sin and the control of my life to Christ? Or am I, Lord? Am I the boss? You know, as I was preparing this message, um, I thought of a movie. (laughs) It's not Rocky, though. By the way, Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, or 9 is on at any given time. There's another set of movies that is on really at any given time. The Bourne movies, right? The Jason Bourne movies, okay? And um, there's uh, in the very first one. So, so J- you ever, everybody know who Jason Bourne is? He's, uh, he's, uh, he's Matt Damon. He just made another one. He's born again. <laughs> um, but in the very first one, he's, uh, it starts with him floating. You think he's dead in the ocean. And a fishing boat pulls him out. And uh, he's been shot. And throughout the movie, uh, he realizes he's like this highly trained operative who... Uh, who can fight and, and knows everything about guns and knows everything about uh, how to defend himself, and, uh, but he doesn't know who he is. So he, he's trying to remember, who am I while on the run? And he's been trained by the CIA, and the CIA is trying to kill him. His own country is trying to kill him. And it's like in the action scenes, I don't know that any scene is any longer than two seconds. It's really tense, you know. He's running, and he's fighting guys, and finally, at the very end of this, this uh, first one, this CIA operative and he are in a room, and they're slamming each other up against the wall, and the, the, the guy says, Jason Bourne, you need to remember, think, 
what happened? And he, and he has this flashback where he thinks of a, of a, of a scene that went wrong and there, he was supposed to kill somebody and it went wrong. And then he comes to himself and he stops in the middle of this fight and he goes, I don't want to do this anymore. I think there are a lot of people in church. Maybe you were born into Christianity. Maybe your spouse dragged you. Maybe you were sold a lie. Maybe you went to some kind of a church that they presented a half gospel. Pray this prayer, don't go to hell. And then here are all these principles you can use. But you never really came to Christ. And as you learn more and more about the holiness of God and who Christ is and what He expects of you, and that He says, take up your cross. Surrender to Me as Lord. Here's what I expect of you. A lot of people go, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I liked the the lie gospel. I liked the easy gospel. So, here we are. Time to man up. What are you going to do? I want to challenge you to be all in or be all out. Choose this day whom you will serve. Now, remember... When you walk away, you go to hell. When you walk away from Christ. But some people will say, that's fine. I'd rather have my sin. But now there's some good news. Okay? The good news is all... realize, yes, I'm a sinner. I, I've, been in, I've been hostile toward God and believers. I haven't loved His Word. I love my sin more than Christ, but I want salvation. That's called the Holy Spirit working in you. Drawing you to Christ. And when you place your trust in Him, Paul now describes the Colossians. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So um, here's, here's atonement. Jesus dying on the cross for your sin for your lack of interest in His Word, for your love of your sin over Him, for your critical heart. He died on the cross to pay for that. And He gives you His righteousness. So right now, you can stand perfectly holy in His sight. He presents you holy and blameless, above reproach. But I've sinned. Yes, you have. 
But he gives you the gift of not only his death, but of his life, of his righteousness. And he reconciles you. Really, reconcile means he adopts you as his own child and puts you in a right relationship. And now your heart will love him and will desire his word and will fight against sin and will encourage the other sheep. I want to call you to repent and believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. Or reject Him. Choose whom you will serve. All in or all out. Let's pray. Lord, you deserve worship in glory and obedience, you created us and you saw our sin and you died. And you offer salvation to all who will acknowledge their sin and turn from it. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your work amongst us. I pray that those who may have been fooling themselves would have their eyes opened see their lack of passion for your word, their critical hearts, their lack of submission to their creator and turn from it and repent of it and embrace the cross where those sins were paid for, where your righteousness is poured out upon all who will believe. So Holy Spirit, do your work. Thank you, Jesus, for what a great God you are, a great Lord and a great Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.